Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. And Zeke Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on what? It's the 23rd of November. Uh, 2022. We're getting ready for Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's Wednesday. Yeah. It's Wednesday. We're all Pasta Palooza, as we say in our house. We have uh, Pasta Palooza. We have a special Wednesday. Pasta Wednesday. Special pasta dinner on the eve of Thanksgiving. But it's earlier in the day. We're not making dinner yet. And we're doing, uh, you know, a quick podcast that we're slipping in there before the holiday podcast. Zeke is in with his family from California, which means that. Noel, Pepper is in the house. Noel and Pepper are in the house. Yeah. Nap time. That's how we get this break. So we got to really move it. Right? So this is episode 299. Right. And um, so we started this about five years ago. Yeah. You realize that? I'll do five that. Five years ago? And, yeah. and the, idea, the idea was it was based on old time radio shows. Right. Where there were a couple of different shows where a husband and wife would... Uh, be on the radio from their apartment in New York yeah. and just be reading the newspaper and they're going about their daily business. Yeah. And so it was kind of loosely based on that. And those were every, those were daily shows. Yeah. So we only do it once a week and we don't discuss everything, but we just, you know, talk about some things that catch our eye, just right. like we talk to each other. But here we're sharing it. And we, you know, and we do, I, this and we do ramble on and rant about things that are interesting to us, even if they haven't been in the podcast. Here's the craziest thing. We actually talk to each other about things that we don't talk about on the podcast. So we have a whole separate life of talking other than what's on the podcast. So it's crazy how much talking we do. Whoa. The, uh, <laughs> the, the other thing is, just, just for the math aficionados out there, if it is episode 299, as you say, it's like six years, not five years. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Six <laughs> years, really? Yeah. What time of year did you start it in? Well, I think we it was 2017. Math. That's why I say five. I but I guess by the time we started in week, January of 2017, yeah. so I guess it's coming up to six yeah, years. Yeah, we've been doing it mm-hmm. for six. All right, so we should anyway. be good at it by now. So we're going to roll into things. Uh, it should be highly entertaining. And you know, one of the things about having the families here again, Zeke's family arrived yesterday, but then 10 seconds ago, Granger's family arrived. They'll make their presence known. Is uh, we get to watch some goofball. I shouldn't say goofball television. We watched some television yesterday. By it was interesting that that uh, TCM showed the Automat documentary, and we had noticed the Automat Automat documentary. We almost thought about going to Doylestown to see it. It's a kind of a got some good notices. It's, it's you know it's a short piece. It's about seventy minutes right. on the Automat Horn and Hornet Automat, and the, you know the one where you put a nickel in and you open the window when you grab a pot pie. And uh, well, I must say, I've been to the automat, yeah, but I don't think we put in a nickel. <laughs> you're a young girl, you're a spring chicken. <laughs> I, I think prices had risen. Well, it's it's not like it was a nickel in 1943, then stayed that way. Well, it was a bunch of interviews, and the principal interview uh, was with uh, Mel Brooks. So, there's a guy old enough to have been put in a nickel. They kept asking him about what it was. He said, Oh, yeah, coconut cream pie for a nickel. Uh, matter of fact, he was crazy about the coconut cream. Pie. Yes, he, he went on and on and on. Uh, it's a little nostalgic thing. He, he talked, though, about you would go in and you would get a roll of nickels for a dollar. That's how you started your evening. So uh, he really meant a nickel. Um, for those who don't understand, yeah. do you think everyone knows what an automat yes. is? Yeah. Okay. Even if you're very young? I can't convince you. I mean, they did say in the film that the last one closed 
50 years ago? No, no, not 50? 50? I think they said it closed in the 70s, so... Well, the 70s was just about 12 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you can find that's not the case. All right, so it was, a, it was a restaurant. You walk in, and it had all these cases on the wall, and right. you put in a nickel, and it opened a little door, right. a little glass door, little glass and one. you yes. pull out your piece of pie or your right. hamburger or whatever. Right. I don't really know how it worked because how was all that stuff hot? I don't even know. Because the people behind there were making hot food and putting the hot food into the window. But if somebody didn't come by immediately. But they had tremendous crowds. They had volume. It was moving. And it was funny. They had a coffee spout. You put in a nickel in the wall... And there's a spout, and the coffee would come out the spout. The spout was very ornate. It was well, like the, was the head of a griffin or something. Oh, yes. Yes. Dolphin. 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 Yeah, yeah it, it was, was crazy. Well, it was a very nice setting. That's the yeah. one thing I had lost track of. First of all, there are a whole bunch of these places. Well, they weren't very nice when we went there. Uh, no. Because they had already become run no, down. No, that's true. But they, they had a bunch of places in New York and in Philadelphia, which I didn't realize. And they were, they kept using the word elegant. And when you look at the photos of these places, they were kind of elegant. Uh, for a place that was either you described as fast food or what was your phrase? Fast casual. Fast casual. <laughs> That's your and, whole personality. And guys fast were wearing casual. suits and their fedoras. Everybody wore a suit and, and, apparently you know, in the 1940s. That's what men, women, and children. Yeah. Suits galore. So uh, it looked very elegant. And people talked about it with great warmth and great affection. Uh, people of all stripes. People didn't have any money, actually. Who would go there and get what they thought was a Nice meal, eat in a very nice setting, uh, and they lamented that there's nothing like it today. Here's my question. Yeah. Do cafeterias still exist? Not too many that I know of. Because we used to go out to very... We, we would go to Wheaton Plaza, yeah. and there was a cafeteria there. I forget the name of the This chain. is we, you growing up my before family. you met your husband. Yeah. Yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, in Maryland. And you go through a line, just like you're in the cafeteria the school line. yeah. And uh, get your food, and uh, it you know was largely well, you know, we, unremarkable food. But I mean, you'd have your favorites. There would be things yeah. that, like Mel Brooks and his coconut pie, that you just love. I think the cafeteria suffers from a poor reputation today. Why? Because uh, they're thought of as being institutional. You know, oh, it's the, uh, I just it's can't think. Would, I can't think of school. any. The food uh, you would get when you were in the clink, that sort of thing. Well, <laughs> once when we were on a trip we to the Morrison's. South. We went to We went to Morris. That was what we called. It yeah, was very in Sa- nice. like Savannah, Georgia. Yeah, it was very good. Somewhere. And I'd like to think it's still It was there. great food. I'm going to look it up food. while we're talking. See if Morrison's is still there. It was very good food. So, anyway. And it was a good food. So, but I mentioned the so, fast casual restaurants just because I think that's the closest thing today. Where There, there are restaurants today that are perfectly nice, that are, that are pretty decent places to eat, that have pretty decent food, and uh, pretty affordable prices but uh you know you're going up and getting the food and then sitting down it may not be like a line structure exactly but you know like you you go to chipotle it's a a nice enough experience despite not being expensive and uh you know it's you just walk up and get the food and sit down so yeah i think there are more and more um restaurants now where you get your own food i mean of course classically in english pubs right You'd order at the bar hmm. and go sit down. So you didn't have table service as such. Um, so maybe this is, and maybe with, you know, COVID and the shortages of help and so on, we're going to see more of this return to uh, self-serve. Morrison's Cafeteria no longer in business as of 1998. Oof. Yeah. Just I, I, I haven't, but I mean, there are restaurants that are somewhat like, I mean, Sabaro's is sort of a cafeteria yeah, line yeah, in a yeah. way, uh, yes. but 
but not quite. Not like Morrison's. No. And no. Well, so in any event, that scene to be lost. And then they followed it up with a movie on TCM, which was kind of clever, which was that touch of Mink, which is one of those Doris Day movies, in this case, her romantic interest being Cary Grant, um, which had several scenes in the automat. Uh, in particular... Uh, one scene in the automat. Uh, no, no. More than oh. one scene in the automat, yeah. But uh, Audrey Meadows, uh, who you remember from The Honeymooners, right. played a worker at the automat. And Doris Day would just, you know, order, you know, her entree. She'd open the window, take her entree, and then she's having a conversation on the other side with her buddy, Audrey Meadows, who keeps handing her. <laughs> Through the window? <laughs> yeah. Do you want a baked potato with that? How about some peas? Do you want peas or carrots? How about a dessert? Here's jello. Here's a piece. You know, she's basically giving her free food through the open window. That doesn't and, sound good. Yeah. And then her That's not right. Her out. Yeah, it's not so, right. So one thing about the ottoman also. Yeah. You got your food and you could stay there as long as you wanted. That was a thing. So people would hang out. Just I like you hang that. out at Starbucks yeah, or whatever. But, but now, now there's a shady side to that. And people Well there were, it, it met its demise that way because it became as it lost its um, I guess appeal to some people, it became a hangout for homeless people. It right. was a place to stay warm. And the horn and heart out art people were not inclined to discourage right. Um, people from staying warm but, and, and having a place have to, to be. You have to wonder, though, whether, first of all, it's nice that they had this kind of uh, welcoming policy, but you also yeah. have to wonder whether there's just that many more homeless people now such that that kind of policy wouldn't have stood up in today's times. That then that we were talking about, there were a couple of, of people who were sitting quietly at a couple tables and they'd sit there all day and that's fine. But you wonder how it would work out today if, in fact, they'd be inundated. I don't know. But I suspect that it would be a bigger issue. Well, in, in the um, documentary implied or said, really, that uh, at a certain point, it was older people who right. had nowhere else to be. Right, understood. Just sitting there all day and homeless people who also had nowhere to be. Right. Um, and uh, it just, uh, you know, But that's not, what put it out of, that's not what put it out of business. I mean, it just it was, it didn't, the times moved on. It became less popular. Uh, we had a whole debate trying to figure out why it's, that kind of thing is less popular. And there was a lot of talk in the movie about, gee, uh, no one could ever do this again. Just uh, wouldn't, uh, you know, attract enough in the way of customers. And I, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. But they, they well, at actually, first they were sort a, of that's saying. A challenge to you, dear listener. Start <laughs> your own automat today. They were replaced. the critics wrong. They were replaced by fast food. Revive well, that business model. They also, they also said. That everyone moved to the suburbs. Yeah. So there, were, so there was no one to eat there. No one lives but in that New York but anymore. Yeah, but I was going to say that Zeke's right. I mean, that doesn't really wash. No, it doesn't. But unless, well, here's why it might wash. Because if if Manhattan just became a place where, for 1% or is wrong, but it, it was just wealthier people and the people who were more interested in the cheaper food moved out to the outer boroughs, let's say, or to Long Island then you might have lost some of your customers. But the fact is, Philadelphia is not like that. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia is not a wealthy city. I know there's some nice places. But uh, generally speaking, there's plenty of pockets of Philadelphia which has people who are looking for a bargain, which, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I, you, can't, you can't say there's nobody there. Well, what they said in, in the thing was that people were still, they were serving lunch. Monday through Friday. Right. But they lost all their breakfast and dinner business. Because people, business. a certain group and, and, moved out. And 
but, Saturday and Sunday. But Zeke's right. There's still plenty of people in Philadelphia. Yeah, there's plenty <laughs> of people, and I think people still want sandwiches and pie. I think that it's to me the most suspicious thing is just that the uh, it's this whole concept driven by a single company, and so whatever flaws or failings that company may have had, if they didn't update this, if they kind of lost track of the unit economics for that item, like that, you know, maybe they were just bleeding money over time and they were just, you know, going out of business as many businesses do. Yeah. Uh, to me, that sounds more likely than the concept being broken because so much of the concept is still intact in other businesses today, just not the exact uh, model well, and the exact yeah. uh, That may be, but the suggestion was implicit in the presentation and there's nothing behind this. This is what they were kind of giving you subliminally right. was that that was a time when people were more civil and more... Uh, interested in having more communal spaces, nicer spaces, uh, and therefore they welcomed that, appreciated that in a way people don't appreciate that kind of thing today. That was, I thought, the subtext. Yeah, but I, 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 I agree that's not true. Um, well, we see all kinds of communal spaces today. Yeah, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what they were telling me. Um, but uh, I, I think that, uh, I think what you put your finger on a couple minutes ago, got out of style. Yeah. It ran its course. Yeah. Oh, and people sure. move on to something else. Yeah. You know? Okay. Um, well, think, speaking of things that are ran its course and are out of style, you pointed out that there's a bunch of historical artifacts uh, in New Jersey that are not on display because there's no place to show them. Well, there was an article in the New York Times about all these great things that New Jersey owns, you know? Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, for instance, let's see. Well, the... The um, reporter goes to a kind of anonymous storage building in Trenton with a guy. And the guy (laughs) opens a drawer and uh, there's the royal commission from King George III, okay, um, uh, to uh, William Franklin, the uh, governor of New Jersey, you know, um, and... uh, then you open another drawer, and there's uh, stored in the same drawer is the original ink blotched handwritten state constitution uh, on from July second, seventeen seventy six. Then you open another drawer. There's this oversized silver coin, which is the first um, the the um, original cast of the seal of New Jersey. Okay, um, there's a copy from the first printing of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which is worth about $43 million. There are only 13 copies of this. Um, I mean, there's all these other crazy uh, things. The um, original indictment uh, for um, Hamilton. No, for Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Sorry, I'm reading the back of it. The The state state of of New New Jersey Jersey versus... Aaron Burr, <laughs> indictment for murder. Mm. You know, I mean, and the, the question is why? Why are these things just in some drawers mm. in Trenton? Why aren't they a display anywhere? And uh, it says, that this is the way the reporter describes it, New Jersey is a dense, forgetful state that has paved over, knocked over, or simply passed over much of its rich revolutionary history. It lacks a fixed center of gravity like Boston, Philadelphia, Williamsburg, 
where its treasures might be displayed and its stories told. So what he's so, really trying to say is there's no prosperous big city in, in New Jersey. Well, you go to Boston and you, you know you're going to see... But that's, you know, but that's what I'm saying. But the think Tea about Party, it. the Boston what, what, stuff. What's the big city in New Jersey? What's the prosperous big city in New Jersey? There, There is none. That's what it's about. It's okay. not about the museum. It, 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 if you have a prosperous big city, there'll be a place for a museum. But the bigger thing is, what's the nice city? And, and New Jersey doesn't have, unless you can think of one. I mean, it used to be I mean, they, they've been trying to. They've been yeah. trying to put something together to create a... Revolutionary War Experience right. Center um, on the grounds of the State House, right. but even so, you, that's got to be doomed, doesn't it? I mean, because who goes to Trenton yeah. ever? Um, but isn't that the bigger issue that you don't have a nice city? You don't have a place to put it. Yeah, get place to put it. Well, they also, nice in, they also say in this article that there's no, you know, Boston. A lot happened that had yeah. to do with the war. New Jersey, you know, there's 600 different sites where. Battles happen. Important military still, sites. It's too Hampton, Hampton. disparate. There's no nice place in New Jersey. It is, it's a much bigger issue. Not even Princeton? Well, maybe. Yeah, you, now, now you say Princeton. Princeton. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Princeton, Princeton seems like a very historical place. This writer is saying it's a, a, a forgetful state that has well, paved over its, its history. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, you can... You know, those, those jerks in Trenton for being so poor, exactly. why are they Why are they doing that and bothering yeah. me and my yeah. museum for going friends? So the rest of the article is just about the non-profit uh, uh, board, the crossroads yeah. of New Jersey, right, of right. American Revolution, well, Princeton, Princeton might be trying to raise money and trying to, you know, get interest. You know, we have these treasures. We have riches beyond belief. Uh, that we could keep showing yeah. people it's a lost opportunity. Yeah. I do um, think it's worth asking why. It, here's, the, here's the funny thing to me is just that despite there not being a really prosperous, really famous city center in New Jersey, it's not as if New Jersey is a poor state. No, it's, just, it's, it's not. There's actually a lot of way. money in the state, but it's it just not, hasn't been not, centered in, in an urban place, which is yeah. which is its own peculiar thing when you think about well, it. Well, it just means know. it's not New York, it's not Boston. I mean, it, those are the exceptions. I mean, if... If we were talking about Iowa, you know, would we be arguing about Des Moines really happening? I mean, I, I think that uh, it's just that New Jersey surfaces in comparison to uh, Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania. Well, I guess you could you could also make this argument. Right. This guy's saying, oh, but look at Boston. What a good job they did. Well, it, it, Isn't Boston the historical well, right, center right. and the prosperous city for right. its entire region? It was for hundreds of and years. For yeah. New Jersey, you have both Philadelphia and New York as, right. as the prosperous Which well, actually pulls away, actually. That's another reason that New Jersey doesn't have that kind of center city because people can go to New York and they can go to to Boston, they can't go to Yeah, I feel like we should also write an article calling out, I don't know, New Hampshire, saying, why don't you have a Boston, right. New Hampshire? Yeah. Why don't you have a Boston, Vermont? Right. So we've... Uh... Well, people love to hate on New Jersey. Yeah, they, they do. do. They it, do. And, and it's just uh, mainly because uh, we don't have to pump our own gas. <laughs> They're jealous. <laughs> That's the reason. So we went to a play that we talked about a few weeks ago. We went to Parade. And Parade was at City Center. And it was an interesting musical. It was good, very good. Uh, ben Platt Stord playing a fellow named uh, Leo Frank. is a sad story who was uh, accused in the South, in the Atlanta region, in the early 1900s of uh, killing, uh, murdering uh, this young girl. And uh, he was uh, lynched. And uh, so it's kind of a... It's a sad situation. It's an intense play to some degree. And again, as I said, it's a musical. Music, music's uh, very interesting. But having spoken about that, I couldn't help but notice there was an article just last week about what happened during intermission at that play. 
And what happens uh, during that play in intermission is that the star, Ben Platt, who plays Leo Frank, doesn't leave the stage. Uh, in other words, normally the curtain closes and the theater is, uh, the stage is dark and people go about their business and buy an orange soda or something. But in this case, uh, the house lights come up as they normally do. But uh, Ben Platt is sitting in, in the set, in the play set, at a desk, uh, in what's supposed to be prison, effectively. Um, and he sits there during intermission. Uh, in character, if you will. As if he's imprisoned. As if he's imprisoned. Right. And uh, it was peculiar. Uh, uh, and strangely, it attracted... Uh, you ever seen that Zeke in a play? I feel like I've seen some kind of gimmick of something going on on stage during intermission. I don't know about that specifically, but... I, I want to say I've, I've seen something like that pulled. Maybe having some actors appear on stage when its all, intermission is almost done to try to entice people back to their seats or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, he's sitting still. And uh, I, it struck me as just peculiar. So this woman in the, in the New York Times, right? This is on page three. So this is kind of a prominent place in the newspaper. Uh, a woman named Nancy Coleman, who's a staff editor of the Times. But she's not a theater writer. And she says that uh, for 15 long minutes of city center, Ben Platt sat there during intermission and she could not take his eyes off of him. Uh, and what she found disturbing was people went about their business. Uh, as I said, go getting an orange soda or uh, getting a, a glass of wine or something like that and kind of ignored the fact that Ben Platt and the character of Leo Frank was on stage and was able to sort of dismiss that there from lines and enjoy a you know a cold drink, uh, which got her kind of agitated. She said, uh, "This is a quote. It felt paralyzing to to me. This is Nancy Coleman as a Jew who grew up attending the same synagogue in Atlanta that Leo Frank did. But for uh, the most jarring moment in the play for her remained watching Frank suffer in silence on stage." as hundreds of theatergoers went about their regular intermission routine. I mean, which is kind of an extreme reaction. You almost thought it was disrespectful that we were you know, going out of business and were able to put out of our minds that this character, Leo Frank, was suffering the way he was. Uh, which is, to me... Has she been to the theater before? Yeah, it's, just, it's totally weird. Because, I, I mean, I guess she's so carried away that she's actually confusing... Uh, ben Platt with Leo Frank and, and maybe there are some dramatic productions such that you do get carried away to that extent but this is a musical okay uh, the idea that she thought for 10 seconds that uh, Ben Platt was uh, Leo Frank is mind boggling and uh, I'm sitting there and I remember commenting to Tamsin and I was watching that he was there and I said to Tamsin doesn't Ben Platt have to go to the bathroom at some point because this is a two-hour-long play. How's he going to manage this? So I, I think I was kind of expressing concern for what was going on, but in a different way. So That sounds like an opening for an exciting behind-the-scenes segment where we learn how they take care of Ben Platt's bathroom needs in the middle of this long You know, what happened was, as soon as they went back on, his character was, was ushered off the stage. I'm sure he went to the bathroom. Uh, the bathroom <laughs> so there you go. All right. So you were going to talk about this. Oh, you're going to talk about this this, this intersection of art and the law, Tamsin. Art and the law, right? 
This is the best. No, I'm just going to talk about uh, how crazy people can be. Okay. Don't take, you think? Take it easy. We're not, you know, we're not that kind of podcast now, <laughs> You know, we're uh, empathetic. Well, the article starts out citing another situation. Steve Wynn um, put his elbow through a Picasso painting he owned. Well, not on uh, purpose. No. <laughs> He's turned around too he fast? Just, he just, he was chatting. They also mentioned in the article he, he has vision his... issues or oh, eye issues or something, you, you know. Serious vision And he, he was showing people and his, those, those his paintings. Picasso paintings. That's aren't made, he elbowed aren't made as well as they should be. They're kind of very on very thin canvas. As they're yeah. No, that's when you have too many Picassos. When you start bumping yeah. into them. Exactly. You know. There's not enough room. To get that's like people who get too many cats and they can't feed all of them. There's it's a point at which it's more responsible to not you, get them. You got to clear out the Picassos. You got to because you, you, you're going to bump into one. So in any, but that's not this article. So anyway, Ron uh, Perlman yeah. had a fire in his house. Yes, yeah, so quite a different thing. Okay, okay. In his, at his East Hampton estate, as one does. He's suing. He's suing. There's a picture. Wait a minute. I'll, I'll get to that. It's he, a huge fire. He's suing the insurance company. He's suing his insurers, contending yeah. that the blaze damaged five of his artworks right. worth. Four hundred and ten million dollars. Right. Now, the fire—they were not touched by the fire. Right, the they fire, were not exposed to any. The fire is on the second floor. The paintings like are on the, the third first floor, floor attic, yeah. or something. And the, and the paintings yeah. are on the on the, the first floor. Plus, they were removed. Yeah, they were <laughs> taken out and put in another building. But he knows during this. the fire, and yet he feels he has an insurance claim because he says that they're not the same. Yeah, that, that uh, in, in fact, you know, one of them lacks the oomph oh dear. <laughs> that it used to have. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so there's a big lawsuit. It's a big lawsuit. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Like a really pain. big lawsuit. Yeah. Gigantic lawsuit. Keep saying how big the lawsuit is. The $410 The voluminous docket includes some 300 filings. Yeah, well, Sounds like your teeth. Yeah. And um, each side That's presenting <laughs> competing experts. How lame was that? <laughs> what constitutes damage? How can it be insured? Mr. Perlman's side bolstered his personal observations with a 400-page report. All right, so here's the about question the lacking We're not oomph. asking you to talk about filings or the law, but the question is, you know what? is there any possibility that being in the neighborhood of a fire, and I don't mean to reject this, I'm asking you, would cause the paintings to be somewhat dulled in appearance such that they lack something? They, um, who, I don't know. I'm not, you're I'm here not for an that. expert. That's no, what you're I'm here not, for. I'm not here for that. But, you know, they, they have experts who say there's no difference. But he can see an is, a difference because he really knows these artworks. Is anyone investigating he has this guy for gambling debts? No, no. So here's the thing. He has some financial he, issues. Uh, he has financial issues at the current time, okay, yeah, yeah. or at least when he initiated the lawsuit, all right, it, the fire happened in 2018. Two years later, he's noticing the differences and, and you know, it's making it tougher. makes the suit. Yeah. Um, so that's, case. you know, that's a little disconcerting, yeah, okay. I would say. I, also, to be clear, this is not uh, a famed star of the silver screen, Ron Perlman, but a Ronald Perlman happens to have a similar name. Yes, Don't he worry. owned Revlon. Um, For some of us, the, listener, the Ron Perlman of Revlon, Revlon, Ron Perlman. Is, Perlman is actually more well-known than the one who 
have played. Uh, there's, there's also some I mean, one who played team. Hellboy. Yeah. I think not, sir. <laughs> well, the original Hellboy. The one who not, appeared not in Hellboy and Hellboy Two. He appeared in Blade Two. Not a good-looking guy. The, the one who appeared in Pacific Rim. Need I go on? <laughs> he's an ominous, awful-looking guy. He's kind of a rough customer. Yeah, Perennial but, collaborator of Guillermo del Toro. There's also some questionable aspects of the valuations. Well, that's good. The that, thing. He, that, he set the valuations. That's all in the range. Um, this so guy is nothing but questionable. It's, it's, all right, you're piling on. The uh, All right, there's an article last week, you'll remember. Did we make it clear what the lawsuit is about? Yeah, he's trying to recover the, the insurance value from the insurance company. What else could it be about? Okay. So uh, last week, the uh, we talked about, the Times had an article about rowing. They discovered rowing. And they said, without any evidence or support, that uh, it's growing uh, in popularity. And they talked about ro- rowing being the great workout and why it's a great workout. And I'd like to talk about it because I do that. And now they have an article called Bulky Ropes in the Gym, Perfect for a Workout. And now they're saying ropes are the best workout. And I like the article because I do ropes. Um, and a ropes, of course, is, is what you do. Uh, you buy something um, that's called a battle rope that's 30, 40, or 50 feet long and uh, one and a half inch or two inches in diameter. And you put it around a pole. And so it's doubled up in a sense. And you uh, sort of do, you know, put your arms up and down. You have oscillating uh, shapes with the ropes and uh, moving the ropes around that way, either in unison or alternating one arm and the other, is good exercise. And according to the Times, it's great exercise. Great exercise. Well, you see it on the commercials. Yeah, you do, but you just for the various, little you know, sports super fit guys. Yeah, super fit guys, yeah. and it, it builds uh, waving these things in the air. Well, you see it when you look out the window in the morning, uh, so you get to see it more than other people because uh, your husband's doing it. It builds strength and cardiovascular health without being too hard on the body of the person doing it. That's what it says in the Times. Uh, it, you get potential gains in, excuse me, gains in core strength, endurance, and how efficiently your body consumes oxygen. Plus, you develop times in explosive power. So, uh, again, not news to you. Not news to you. I will recommend to our listeners the uh, one and a half inch uh, diameter a Dacron polyester rope. I think that's the Cadillac of ropes. I think you can get that <laughs> from uh, Muscle Ropes, which is an outfit in. California, but you yeah, can get it. What are you getting money up. from these people? I should. <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to recommend. Once again, that's the one and a half inch polyester <laughs> rope from Dacron. <laughs> Dacron polyester rope from Muscle Ropes. <laughs> you can get the Manila ropes. ropes. They're actually better, but they shed, and then your wife complains. So you don't want that. Why uh, are they better if they shed? They, they better feel. It's a better feel. The, the, the Dacron polyester rope. I'm glad you Listen, asked. Here's it's a little the thing. stiff. So it doesn't give you the same play. This you know, I'm tired of low-quality ropes cluttering up my house. I don't use them, and they fall apart too easily. Oh, you should what get a Dacron polyester rope. No oh. one's going to buy ropes. You know, the, the ropes take up like a third of our basement. Oh, my God. All right? And who has anything to tie them Tell to? Tell them the discount code. Can I explain? I think the idea is just that you go to the gym and use their ropes. Yeah. That's, which is terrible. There's nothing worse than seeing someone do ropes indoors. It's just awful. I mean, look. <laughs> Let me just go back to the magic phrase, explosive power. I'll leave it at that. All right, so go ahead. You had uh, do your uh, turban or we're, we're getting to the end of this. Turbans. Right. Nova Scotia, Bay of Fundy. Bay of Fundy. You know, it has the highest tides in the universe or something. 
Does it? Yeah, like 90 feet. Wow. I don't know. 50 feet. 50 foot high tide. So uh, for generations, you know, uh, engineers have been hoping to harness the record-setting 50-foot high tide to generate electricity. And as you were saying, we know of all kinds of turbines, but uh, none really that just, you know, sit in the ocean and benefit from the power of Mother Nature that way. Right. There are hydroelectric plants that usually built around dams. No dam here. This so the, just the, the water moves in and out of the Bay of Fundy with you know tremendous power, right. tremendous explosive power. <laughs> should we shall we say? Let's not go crazy. Okay, there's some kind of power. It's not and they've never been able to figure out how to harness that power. People have tried. Yeah. Um, largely, they you know they try to create turbines. They put them in the water, and they're you know they're smashed to smithereens, shredded. Right. Immediately, okay. Um, And this article details some of those efforts. Finally, a coalition of entrepreneurs and scientists has put together something that seems like it might be working and has successfully operated for more than for seven months, longer than any other similar system, producing enough electricity for 250 homes. Okay, so uh, they're calling this sustainable marine. And its innovation is that rather than having stationary turbines on the seabed, which is the way they've tried it in the past, they have um, floating movable ones on the surface, lifting them when dangerous are, you know, dangerous something or other uh, approaches, sub-object approaches, okay, and yeah. being able to, you know, lift them up and maintain them okay. when needed. So, by object, they mean like, uh, yeah, look at whale, yeah. etc. We don't have to, we don't need to, to be able to design one of these. I'm going to take their word for it, that they know what they're doing. But it's funny that they, it's an enormous investment, and they've tried a couple of times, and it hasn't worked out, because it's such a challenge, because there's so much energy and so much force back there, they're just hopeful that this one sticks, right? Right. It, Canada is way behind in terms of alternate energy is that right? sources. Uh, yeah, they're really so. they're, an extraordinary amount of their um, power comes from coal. Really? Still, like, wow. That's, yeah, that's, some enormous did you know that, amount. Zeke? I did not know. That's that. disappointing. Uh, that's disappointing. Catch up, Canada. <laughs> well, they need this kind of thing. So that you know, they have a reason to be uh, kind of. Working at 51%, Nova Scotia still produces 51% of its electricity by burning, burning coal. Wow. Okay. But, that, you know, I overspoke. Nova Scotia. Okay. All right. 51%, Canada. not well, Canada. I hope this works out. What can I say? The Bay of Fundy. Um, all right. So the last thing we have is uh, a story about Hogan's Heroes, an actor in Hogan's Heroes. And, of course, Tamsin remembers Hogan's Heroes. Are you familiar with Hogan's Heroes, Zeke? No. Really? So that was a very popular sitcom for many years. It was very funny. Yeah. It was a uh, uh, prisoner of war. It sounds funny already. <laughs> POW, yeah, POW uh, camp, prisoner of war camp in uh, Nazi Germany. It gets funnier and funnier. And uh, filled with uh, Americans, Englishmen, and some Frenchmen. And uh, they're hijinks. <laughs> well, who was the star? Uh, ben Crane. Bob Crane. Sorry. Bob Crane. Uh, but it was an ensemble piece. And who's who's the other guy in that picture? 
Well, the, the guy on the right, Richard Dawson, who became yes. a real quiz show guy. Yeah, but he... Do you he, familiar with him? He was a real sex symbol in that... Apparently. Uh, yeah. He was uh, kind of a Lothario, and I think he was an Englishman, and he might be an Englishman. Uh, he passed away, too. Um, so in any event, believe it or not, it was a super funny show, and... Uh, <laughs> but here's something that I, that I didn't... And it was on for many years, as popular as any show at the time. Uh, and um, from 65 to 71... Which is, we talked about before is about 16, 17 years ago. Uh, the uh, two prominent characters were the well. Let me back up. Several of the characters, it turns out, had some history uh, of persecution with respect to Nazi Germany, which I had no idea, including the two main Germans in the show. So what you had? Oh, who was that sergeant? Sergeant Schultz. Yes, yeah, Sergeant played Schultz by John Banner. Uh, who fled his home country, Austria, after it was annexed by Germany in 1938. And Colonel Klink, who sort of ran the camp, was the son, and I think you might have known this, the renowned orchestra conductor Otto Klemperer. This is Werner Klemperer. Uh, Otto Klemperer, you may have heard of, and his family fled Berlin for L.A. when Klemperer was 13. So they had negative history, with notwithstanding that they were playing Germans. Well, one of the... Um, so the show was... Inspired by the movie Stalag 17? Yes. Yeah. And Stalag 17, do you know that movie? I don't know why I'm even looking that way. It's a classic. But it wasn't that funny. It was no. a fairly serious No, show. but the the sort of interactions right. of the prisoners and the guards right. is what is a little bit like that. This. A little bit yeah. like that. So in any event, um, Robert Clary passed away. He was the last surviving actor on that show. And as it happens, he's the one who has the most serious... No serious past with respect to Nazi Germany. He played uh, a Frenchman in the camp, uh, one of the prisoners, who was always kind of a light, funny guy. He was, he was the cleverest. You always enjoyed a scene with this guy. The Frenchman mm-hmm. always kind of funny, singing, talking, joking around. Uh, but he had a terrible experience with Nazi Germany. Uh, he was in a concentration camp for three years. And not only was he in a concentration camp for three years, but he, his parents were killed in the concentration camp, as were 10 of his 13 siblings, oh which is unbelievable. And, um, and yet, you know, he's, his personality was such, he always was kind of a bright, bubbly guy. And he says that helped him get through everything. It helped him actually survive because he was sort of an entertainer and people would let him pass and give him a wide berth. And even the Nazis didn't give him a terribly hard time. He was 13 years old or 12 years old. And he said he looked uh, younger. Um, and once in a while, people would say to, you know, people making Hogan's Heroes or commenting on the production of Hogan's Heroes and his popularity that it was in bad taste because they would say, you know, the whole Nazi Germany uh, experience was so distasteful. How could they make light? And he would say, uh, you know, this is a prisoner of war camp. OK, uh, I was in Auschwitz. That's different. OK, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. not funny. Mm-hmm. OK. You can play this for laughs. There's a bunch of guys who are soldiers, American soldiers, kidding around. But uh, So that's just different. We're not making mm. uh, a show yeah. about uh, concentration camps. Uh, and, he, and apparently he wouldn't uh, talk about the concentration camp experience for years and years. And toward the end of his life, he started doing it. And he said it was quite therapeutic for him. So anyway, Robert Clary passed away at 96. So... That's what we have. I mean, it is strange to describe Hogan's Heroes and say it was a terribly funny show, but it was. Yeah. Something for you to look up on the TVs. Pepper will get a lot out of it. Uh, All right. So until uh, we have our official Thanksgiving show, which will be number 300, this is Dan Abuha. 
and Tamsin Granger and, and Zeke. <laughs> and we'll see you sooner rather than later. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. Bye.